tension. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Big banks. The impossible takes two days and miracles take three. Where you've got so many different departments and divisions. Shaping investors' expectations. Money for nothing. Good morning and welcome to Tuesday's Money for Nothing with me, Renita Malhotra-Hora. The U.S. dollar gains with U.S. stocks as Treasuries slip on economy data. Intel's $16.7 billion deal for Altera is fueled by data centers. And China stocks rise the most since January on PMI and bond swap optimism. Well, when it comes to the unpredictability of Chinese stocks, volatility is the one thing that stays consistent. We'll ask our markets guest, Andrew Sullivan of Haitong Securities International, why. We'll also look at Zero Waste Week in Hong Kong. Lisa Christensen from The Movement joins us this morning to tell us more. And our last guest in China, Fitch Ratings' Shencheng Zhang, highlights opportunities and risks on the corporate bond market. Connie Bolland, our Tuesday co-host, is with us in the studio. Good morning, Connie. Good morning, Renita. So lots of company news on the deck with uh, Intel buying Altera and Apple launching a paid-for live-streamed music service, jazzed up, of course, with celebrity DJs. Do you think it can compete with Spotify? Well, I think I think so. I mean, these are all sort of uh, fairly um, uh, straightforward and, and uh, logical integration, which means it will enhance their competitiveness. Remember that Spotify, though, does offer its services for free, whereas Apple is proposing a $10 a month subscription fee. Uh, of course, the flip side is that they're hiring all sorts of, you know, uh, celebrity DJs to create sort of a radio-like uh, environment, you know, for its music listenership. But still, it's paid for. Well, sometimes uh, a, a tiny little difference uh, may not necessarily mean much. Uh, the, the, the important thing is the celebrities is a, uh, a big draw. All right. Well, Britain's top equity index stalled after disappointing domestic economic data pointed to a weak manufacturing outlook with oil and gas stocks amongst the biggest fallers. U.S. stocks rose overnight as a busy week of economic news kicked off with Intel's announcement that it will buy rival chip maker Altera for nearly $17 billion. The Dow rose 29 points to 18,040. The S&P 500 also gained a fifth of a percent to 2,111, while the Nasdaq ended at 5,082, up a quarter of a percent. China stocks rose the most since January as an official manufacturing gauge showed a third month of expansion and speculation increased that the government will take steps to tackle local government debt. Wei Yao is a China economist at Sokgen and she says that this isn't enough. The PBOC could do more. Uh, they could cut interest rate and require reserve ratio more. But the more important thing right now is actually how to generate 
credit demand or how to generate investment demand or consumption demand, which means that it's, it is really the fiscal side should do more. So, so over the past few weeks, we have seen that uh, the government is somewhat adjusting the pace of fiscal reform, allowing local governments to borrow a bit more for the infrastructure project. So that actually is much more critical right now than the monetary policy move. Also, other moves like uh, cutting the consumption tax, this will all help. Um, but again, I think the, the, the degree of uh, extent of help and extent of uh, recovery wouldn't be that great. Mikio Komada, a strategist at LGT Capital Partners, says that although we've had data upticks, when it comes to uh, uh, the PMI and HSBC, China's economy just doesn't look good, despite rate cuts by the PBOC. The cuts do help, but I, I doubt whether they, they will uh, solve any of these more structural problems that the Chinese economy has uh, that quickly. I mean, the cuts just happened recently, uh, and moreover, if you look at the real interest rate in China, it's actually very high. It's, it's been rising, uh, and that, if, if you compare it to what's happening globally, uh, it's all about the real interest rate. Uh, which is around zero in the U.S. now, and that's with the tightening with the end of uh, QE, and it's deeply negative in essentially all other economies because people uh, or policymakers devalue money in order to uh, more or less force people to do something with it, which is not hoarding it. Um, and th- the situation in China is just very far away from that uh, uh, from that thing. So I don't think you would see that that quickly in the macroeconomic data, I mean the easing. You could see it, well you see it in the stock market of course, you see it in parts of the uh, well, financial system, but uh, probably not that quickly in the macroeconomic data. In company news, Intel said it agreed to buy Altera for $16.7 billion in a deal that will take out yet another chip maker and add to a record year for industry consolidation. Here's Intel CEO Brian Krasnick on why they did the deal now. You know, that what really drove this, uh, this timing was actually our customers. Our customers have been asking for products that combine an FPGA, uh, basically a programmable device, along with our CPU in areas like the data center, in IoT, with driving uh, assisted uh, cars. Uh, and, and so our customers really have been driving the need for this. And, and so in order to get them to market in a timely way, we needed to do this acquisition now. $54 a share. Now, that's what it took to get this deal done. But Nomura Securities analyst Romit Shah believes that that's too rich. I think so. Uh, uh, look, they're, they're, uh, if you back out the cash that, that Altera has on the balance sheet, um, you know, the $17 billion purchase price is more like $14 billion. And Intel would argue this is a defensive move for them. It's going to help protect their turf and servers, which accounts for about 50% of the profits. But having said that, you know, when we run the numbers, the deal looks like it's only about 2 to 3% accretive to Intel's earnings, which isn't very much. No. Uh, in, in addition, you know, they're buying a business that's, that's been under some pressure the last few years. All right, let's bring in our markets guest uh, this morning, Andrew Sullivan, who is a managing director of sales and trading at Haitung Securities. Good morning, Andrew. Good morning. So, Andrew, volatility in China. It's uh, the highest it's been in four months. What is driving investors to this casino play? 
well, I think it's the opportunity of, of making money. I mean, it's been an underperforming market for four or five years. Uh, then we saw it start moving higher, and that it's just been momentum ever since. But the swings back and forth, I mean, you know, what can we actually trust? You know, you have some data out and things look good. You have some, you know, pushback when the government clamps down. I mean, how, how do investors actually go and attack this market, so to speak? Well, I think with caution. I mean, realistically, it's it's a you know it's very much a retail-driven market, and it's uh, these are people that don't read 32-page reports or really necessarily follow the uh, the nuances of the uh, HSBC PMI data. They're looking at the headlines. Um, certainly, at the moment, they're looking at IPOs because IPOs in China aren't uh, constrained by the 10% up. Uh, limit per day. Uh, and this is causing that sort of volatility because people will just switch from one to another, you know, following rumors and ideas and trends. Now, um, we've heard a lot about sort of uh, the, the investors in China being lay people, taxi drivers and students. And like you say, you know, people who don't necessarily read 32 page reports. We've also heard that uh, they actually might be doing some of this on margin financing. Is that true? Oh, yes, I'm sure. I mean, certainly at Hightung, we probably finance between 50, 60, 70 percent of our daily business uh, on margin finance. So it's it. But there are there are restrictions in China as to how much you can lend against certain stocks and that's set by the government. So it's it's not wholly uh, uncontrolled. But uh, yes, of course, there's a lot of margin finance takes place. But even with lay people? Well, yes, I mean, if you remember a few months ago, the uh, Chinese regulator did crack down on the opening of margin accounts. Uh, uh, there need to be proper procedures carried out. And obviously, margin financing only works because the, the client has already put some money down. We're not lending them free money. So it's just a matter of that if they put $1,000 down, then they can leverage it up. So the risk is kind of contained and calculated. Oh, yes, and, and we're very close on, on watching that risk. Certainly here in Hong Kong, you know, if a stock moves to 20 or 30%, we will send out a margin warning. Okay. Andrew, the PMI data was good, but does it really show stabilization? I think overall it does. I mean, you, you know, one month doesn't make uh, a great impact. But if you look at the trend recently, yes, it has been improving. I think part of the reason for the disappointment yesterday is the fact that actually recently we've got into this trend that bad news is good news because it means the government's going to do more. Mm. The fact that it came out sort of in line with expectations just gives the government room to wait before may, maybe having to pull any further levers. And, and that's a little bit of a disappointment for people that are looking for, you know, get rich quick programs. Now, we heard from uh, Mikio Kumada of uh, LGT Capital a little bit earlier and he says you know we see these uh, upticks in data from time to time but it doesn't really mean much you know uh, China's economy still has a, a long way to go and, and it's in a slowdown process you don't agree well, I do agree to a degree. Um, the point is that China is trying to change its economy. At the moment, it is still export-driven. And as we know, the global recovery has been much slower than uh, people had hoped or forecasted. So that is still impacting on China. Longer term-wise, though, China is trying to move its economy from an export-driven one to a domestic consumption one. Uh, and that will take time. It's not something you can do overnight. Uh, and so, yes, he's, he's quite right. The, the, the data rep tick points may you know show up turns but as far as strategically repositioning the whole economy that will take a long longer now the ministry of finance uh, has said that it may set uh, an additional quota of 500 billion to 1 trillion yuan for local governments to swap debt into municipal bonds why is this significant 
Well, historically, the local governments have very much relied on things like property uh, in order to raise their finances to, to spend on the infrastructure and the such like. Uh, obviously, there's been the, the, the property bubble, which China is uh, slowly trying to deflate, uh, and it does mean that the, the income for the local governments has changed significantly. They don't have the same degree of local taxation as we have or we see in other countries. So allowing them to do this and to put it to more um, a fiscal steady platform is, uh, again, part of this changing of the whole economy. Now, Andrew, how badly do you think uh, the economy will be affected if indeed the stock bubble does burst? Well, I mean, I think there's two things. I mean, yes, it, it could burst and it, it could, or we could just see um, retrenchments. And I think retrenchments in the short term are likely. Mm. Uh, as far as the long term trend, I think as long as the, the margin finance brokers can afford to finance it, the, the rally will continue on. But if you look at the amount of GDP that the stock markets in China actually are relative to what you see in, say, in New York or London, it's actually a very small proportion of the total economy. So to see a, a significant retrenchment would have some effect, but not a, not a deliberating effect that we might see in New York. Uh, and of course, because it's margin financed, I think the control will be the fact that in China, you know, the stocks can only go down by 10% a day. So you're not going to see it fall off a cliff. You may see a long spiral down, but you're not going to see a crash. Okay, so for the investor, and specifically the investor here in Hong Kong who can buy through the Stock Connect program, um, every day the question is being asked, okay, well, you know, did I wait too long or can I still go into it right now? What are your thoughts? Well, I think it's like investing in any other market. You have to do the due diligence on the companies. You have to see that the company is a a good, well, soundly run company and and has got good demand prospects going forward for its products. Um, It's really no different from any other market at the end of the day. The real question is, though, you know, do you believe in growth in China or do you think, which is still growing at 6, 7 percent? Or would you like to go for growth in America, which may be 1 or 2 percent? But do you think this momentum trading will carry on and how much longer uh, will it last? I mean, company invest, uh, analysis is important, but as long as the momentum fizzles out, then, you know, you may not uh, have that kind of profit opportunities anymore. Well, I mean, momentum, if you're just a momentum investor, then you're always hoping that the next man behind you steps <laughs> up to the plate. Um, that's that's not a you know, long-term sustainable way of investing. As I say, you have to look and be fundamentally uh, analysing these companies to make sure that they're good companies and have got the long-term prospects. If you just want to you know, go for momentum, then you have to really just do it on a day-by-day basis. You know, watch the screen every second of the day, and the moment it moves the wrong way, sell. Any specific recommendations, Andrew? Well, I still like you know good fundamental companies. So people like Tektronix, as we come into the uh, the house building and summer season in the US, is likely to do well. Um, I still think there are some good companies like Plax Global, which makes uh, point of sale um, machines. Uh, but I'm still very wary on things like you know the airlines, where I think uh, you know the rising oil price and, and the lack of growth in you know global demand is still hurting them. All right, Andrew, thank you so much for joining us this morning. That's Andrew Sullivan. He is Managing Director of Sales and Trading at Haitong Securities uh, International.
A quick look at the numbers now. The Nikkei is up uh, 0.14% to 20,598. Australia's ASX 200 index is up 0.3% to 5,750. And Seoul's Kospi up 0.09% to 2,104. In currencies, one euro is currently valued at 1.09 US dollars. The US dollar is trading at 124.85 yen and one pound sterling by you 11 Hong Kong dollars and 78 cents. The Labor Department and the Airport Authority Hong Kong will hold the Hong Kong International Airport Korea Expo 2015 in Exhibition Hall 3B of the Hong Kong Convention and Exhibition Center from June 5th to 7th. Around 50 employers will offer a wide range of positions. Please visit www.jobs.gov.hk or call 2852-4922 for details. The time is now 8.18 a.m. and Hong Kong's three landfills will be full by 2019. That's given the current rate of 6 million tons of waste every year. That amounts to 13,800 tons every day, only 48% of which is recycled. Well, next week is Zero Waste Week in Hong Kong. So let's bring in Lisa Christensen, co-leader of Hong Kong's uh, Zero Waste Week movement. Good morning, Lisa. Hi, good morning, Renita. So can you tell us exactly what it's all about? Absolutely. So uh, stepping back a little bit, uh, we started the Hong Kong cleanup in 2000. And that is a large scale movement now that mobilizes more than 200,000 volunteers from financial institutions and large companies, schools, NGOs around the region, collecting trash off our beautiful beaches and country trails. Now, while cleaning up is a wonderful exercise and certainly behavior changing when people get out there, it's not the solution. It's more of a band-aid approach. We really not need to start you know, working at the source to reduce the amount of waste that we're creating. Uh, when I came here in 1997, the landfills were supposed to be full in 2014. Now we're in 2015, and they're saying 2019. Hmm. So, you know, how many corporations are actually joining the summit uh, next week and who are they and you know what's in it for them yeah so you know the, the zero waste goal is a long-term and visionary uh, goal towards a closed loop industrial and societal system so it's about creating a circular economy and you know the whole principle of zero waste is uh, that it is you know, a smart business decision. It's no longer a far-off environmental dream. So we're creating a business, a global summit, bringing the world's experts um, from Europe, from the U.S., Sweden, the Philippines, to share how some of the case studies um, of both company and municipalities have succeeded in achieving zero-waste goals and how that has resulted in a direct saving of, you know, a lot of money. For the companies. Correct. And can you, you know, walk us through that? Give us some examples? Sure. So uh, if you look in the U.S., um, companies like GM, Honda, Ford, um, you know, they're setting targets. And, uh, for instance, 10 factories out of Honda's total of 14 have now achieved a zero-waste goal. Um, This is a massive achievement. Uh, Companies like DuPont, Unilever, Walmart have also done the same. DHL has uh, reduced landfill waste from 25% to 
7% achieving a cost saving of more than 3,000 euros per month in, in the UK. So Lisa, why have we been so slow to adapt here in Hong Kong? Well, it's a very good question. Uh, you know, things do take time to get mm-hmm. to Hong Kong sometimes. However, once they do arrive, they happen very quickly, as you know. So when we start seeing that it makes financial sense and that it's an economic benefit rather than just, a, you know, an environmental dream, as I mentioned, it's it's going to I think we're going to see a, a huge, uh, very you know highly trending activity like we're seeing around the world. Aren't there a lot of the sustainability initiatives in a lot of the uh, corporates, even in Hong Kong nowadays, um, are they cooperating and working with you on this sort of waste management and environmental issues? Yeah, Connie, that's a great question. So, in fact, we are hosting a closed, uh, an ex- high-level executive roundtable at mm-hmm. the Nomura offices on Monday to kick off Zero Waste Week, and financial institutions, including CLSA, State Street. Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, um, and a number of others have already signed up to take part. So we're looking at how can we create a zero-waste office? What are the targets? What are the timelines? And working with the companies to start looking at real benchmarking and auditing processes. All right, Lisa, thank you uh, so much for joining us this morning on Money for Nothing. And good luck with that. It sounds uh, very, very interesting. Uh, When is the summit? Uh, It's next week on the 11th of June? Yeah, uh, the summit, there's still tickets available. Uh, We've got over 20 international uh, speakers coming. And uh, it's on the 11th of June, Thursday, the 11th of June. You can buy tickets on uh, ecozine.com slash zero waste week. And that's where uh, we can find out more about the summit itself? Correct. And we're inviting all members of the public and business uh, government to take a pledge. So we've seen already uh, public listed companies and leaders from the community and celebrities making a pledge of what they can do that week to cut down their waste. All right. Thank you. That's Lisa Christensen. She is the co-founder of Hong Kong's Zero Waste Week movement. The time is now 8.24 a.m. and China's fast-growing corporate bond market is said to be hampered with regulatory fragmentation. Fitch Ratings has just published a report on the opportunities and risks in the corporate bond market as the debt market is taking shape. Let's speak to their associate director of corporate research who uh, oversees this report, Shuncheng Zhang in China. Good morning, Shuncheng. Morning. Morning. So, uh, Shuncheng, you say that, uh, you know, uh, regulatory fragmentation, uh, you know, that this is a concept that is unique to China's bond market. Can you explain? Yes, that's true. I think uh, for those who are new to uh, China's corporate bond market, this is uh, perhaps the first thing they should know. Can you tell us more so, about it? Uh, sure, sure, sure. As you may have known that uh, we have... Uh, three separate bond markets here in China. Mm-hmm. The interbank market, the stock exchange market, and the bond, and the bank contest market. So for each of the, these three markets, they have, uh, it has uh, one or two uh, government authorities uh, overseeing the, that market. For example, like uh, for the interbank market, which is the uh, largest bond market, in China, it oh. is co-regulated uh, by uh, the People's Bank of China, the central bank, and also a self-regulated um, organization under the uh, 
purview of the People's Bank of China. So it sounds like there is not much cohesiveness in the regulatory framework, uh, you know, for these three different kinds of bonds. But there's also been a surge in the market size. Both the annual issuance and the outstanding balance of China's corporate bond market have been growing fast. Now, is that in all three kinds of bonds? And, and, you know, how does that play into uh, this equation? You know, um, there are uh, there are a couple of reasons for the surge in the market size of China's corporate bond market. And I can share a few numbers with you. So uh, at the end of uh, 20, 2004, the, the, the market size um, of China's corporate bond market is about $160 billion. And as of uh, the end of April this year, um, the number is, is about... trillion. So they grow at an annual average growth rate above 50%. So the reason behind that first is the uh, increasing demand for funding from infrastructure investments and after the global financial crisis. And that has uh, attributed to the the growth. Another reason is that um, a lot of issuers decided to place the bank loans uh, with uh, onshore corporate bonds. Now, one of the problems that you mention actually in the report is uh, that of rating inflation. Um, so a, a lot of the ratings for corporate bonds in China inflated, and if so, how does the investor know what to trust? Yeah, that, that's a very good question. You know, uh, I, I think uh, domestic, uh, domestic investors... Uh, has their own will do their own uh, homework on researching uh, these onshore corporate bonds. I see. And uh, yeah, yeah, you know they have their own analyst team. They would not solely uh, uh, rely rely on the. Uh, uh, quite a rating report. So, f- how about rating agencies? But what about retail investors who are sort of relying on ratings, uh, you know, as a measure or a, a mark of what you know should hopefully be a quality bond? Actually, you know, the, the central government has um, has some concern on this issue, so they have uh, regulations on the. Uh, or put it another way, they have uh, uh, limits on the credit ra- on the rating that the, the the retail investors can invest. For example, the um, exchange corporate bonds, which are rated below triple A, mm-hmm. cannot be uh, public issued to retail investors. I think that's uh, protection uh, of. Uh, domestic retail investors. I see. All right. Well, uh, yeah. that's unfortunate for retail investors, but uh, I guess we'll have yeah. to wait and see, you know, how and when that changes. All right, Chen Cheng, thank you so much for joining us uh, this morning. That's Chen Cheng Zhang, and he is his Associate Corporate uh, research director at Fitch Ratings. Well, here we are almost at the end of the show. So let's take a quick look at the numbers. The Nikkei is up 0.13% to 20,597. Australia's ASX uh, 200 index is down four tenths of a percent to 5,710. And Seoul's Kospi also down.
down 0.15% to 2099. Gold currently stands at $1,188 per ounce and Brent crude oil at $64.79. So, Connie, here we are once again at the end of a Tuesday. What uh, should we have our eyes on uh, this week in finance? Well, this will be a very busy week. The central banks uh, of Australia, England, India, Brazil, ECB, they will all meet this week to decide interest rate directions. Uh, the Indian um, central bank may, may cut rates while the Brazilian one will um, raise rates. And then loads of data from U.S. culminating in the non-farm payrolls. And last but not least, Greeks have to repay uh, $300 million loan this Friday. And, well, we have to see what kind of uh, money they can extract mm. from talking to um, German Chancellor. <laughs> yeah, what they can muster up. All right, so lots of economic news on the global front. Connie, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Connie Bolland, the founder and chief economist of Hong Kong's Economic Research Analysis, is our guest host every Tuesday on Money for Nothing. And I'm Renita Malhotra-Hora, wrapping up for this morning's show. A quick look at the weather forecast for today. It'll be hot with sunny periods and isolated showers in the morning. The temperature right now is 29 degrees Celsius and the relative humidity is 82%. And here's the half-hour news with Sam Butler. More than 20 people have been rescued after a luxury cruise ship carrying over 400 people sank overnight in the Yangtze River. State media say Premier Li Keqiang is heading to the scene of the accident in central Hubei province. Janice Wong reports. The Xinhua News Agency says the ship was sailing from Nanjing to the southwestern city of Chongqing when it sank at about 9.30 last night. At the time, the vessel, the Dongfang Jisheng, or Eastern Star, was carrying around 400 passengers, five travel 